Hi guys, I'm Kristen, and this is Carla. Hi! Join us as we explore origin stories and fun facts, or something. legit in the garden today for once in my life why because like with my whole energy thing i'm like oh my god and i'm like totally like battling such depression it's not even funny oh no so everything is such a struggle where i'm like i can't do this anymore (laughs) i know right call emergency services right but then i'm like just go in the garden you moron so i went and i actually planted a whole willow tree Whoa! It was like this random willow. Like I am every Easter, we cut willow branches, like because it's just a thing people do, right? Okay. And willows can handle it; they don't care. And yeah. we, I don't know who put it in a pot, but it, this thing actually took root and survived all no winter way. in a pot. We were like, "That's not a thing that happens here." Whoa! Also, total side note: there, it's almost. June. I know this will come out later, but whatever. And there's a frost advisory. I'm like, <laughs> this weather has been what? insane. So today, it's so cold. I went and sat down by the beach, like in this like grassy park right by the <laughs> beach, because it was like <laughs> sunny <Sorry>. here. <laughs> I immediately like that part of me that would sympathize with anything you might say just turns <laughs> off. <laughs> nope. But you'd think I would do it all the time, right? Like, but. It, I don't know. The weather's been so bad. I know it's Aww. like first world problems, but the weather's no, been no, so just... bad. So I went today because I've been meaning to do it. It's like one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. And I'm like, do it, you jackass. Just go. <laughs> so I had my little journal, like I had a little iced coffee, yeah. whatever, went and like <laughs> sat by the water. And then I ended up talking to this lady and petting her dog, of course. And... Uh, <laughs> I, she was like, yeah, it's just so, so did you just come like to just hang out? I'm like, yeah, I came to like get some sunshine finally. Cause if it's out, we need to be out in it. And quite often when I go outside, I'm going like into the woods. So you're just yeah. like in the shade the whole time anyway. <laughs> and she was like, oh my gosh, I know. Like we're so desperate for sunshine. We've had like hardly any mm. sunny days. Yeah. And then of course she's like, yeah, so I think tomorrow might be sunny and then it's going to rain for like four days straight. I'm like, son of a... Oh, no. But was it sunny for you at the beach? It was, yeah. For, at okay, first. And good. then it got cloudy because and really windy, but... that is brutal when you're only... Thi- what happens the most to me is like about 9 or 10 a.m. And it's so like sketch... Like, I don't know what the weather... Like, it hates me here. 9, 10 a.m. It's all sunny. Right. So I'm like, okay. And by the time I'm ready and have breakfast and shower and all that garbage, do all my stuff. Right. Yeah. I go outside and guess what? The clouds are rolling in. (laughs) You need to start waking up at like five in the morning. So I could sit out in the cold air at eight in the morning. Exactly. In that frost. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's been nuts. What a year for weather. It's brutal. Mm -hmm. Brutal. (sighs) Okay, guys. This week is. Um, my topic, and I would sound more excited, but we've already recorded this once before, and the mm-hmm. stupid software that we use that we absolutely hate, but we've paid for it, um, <laughs> so we're stuck with it for now, mm-hmm. lost the recording, and they can't retrieve yeah. it. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm super irritated because it was such a fun topic. And, and it's was, still going to be a fun topic. It's amazing. And it was, but it was one of my favorite recordings we've done, I think, ever. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> and then the fact that it's lost, I'm like, really? <laughs> it's the lost recording. But you know what? We're what? delightful and <laughs> magical human <laughs> beings. So this is going to be great. It's true. And maybe with rehearsal, it will just get better. <laughs> Something tells me the opposite Probably will Probably not. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to say this again. You guys, be a brat no, about it. This is a really, now that I know what it is and everything, it's one of the best topics. <laughs> Even if you think you know, you don't. It's so fun. It's so, It was so, so funny. Good. I was talking to my sister today um, about her ex-husband because he's like definitely the type of person who maybe has run a few of these things. <laughs> And she's like, don't name him by name. I'm like, what am I going to just call out a bunch of like scam artists? Okay, so people this week, so you know what I'm talking about. I am doing the origin of the Ponzi scheme. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Because I was like, why is it called a Ponzi scheme? Like, where did that name come from? Like, yeah. I know the idea of it, but I didn't know like where that came from. You know, everybody and throws I it around. originally guessed his name would be Alfred Ponzi, which somehow <laughs> yeah. makes more sense based on his, like, nationality that you will get to. I know. I still, you know, when we finished recording, I was like, why is that his first name? How? That's a really good point. Right? Yeah. All right, Okay, his first it. name is Charles, you guys, and he's yeah. from Italy, so it yeah. should be, like, Alfredo Ponzi or something. Right? <laughs> I even did, like, the hand gesture. Yeah. <laughs> Italian. I almost said, or Timothy. No, that's not Italian. No, Timothy. You're not allowed to name people. <laughs> I can't think of, what, Luigi? I can't think of anything. <laughs> Just Mario and Luigi. <laughs> the Mario Brothers was based on him. <laughs> okay, so first I needed to figure out exactly what a Ponzi scheme was. I knew, I thought I knew what it was, and I was pretty right about it, but I was like, no, I need to actually see. You know, it's one of those things that you think yes. you know what it is. You think you know it, but you don't, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you told so, me, and I still don't know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> a Ponzi scheme is a form of fraud that lures investors and pays profits to earlier investors with funds from more recent investors. So the scheme leads victims to believe that the profits are coming from a legitimate business activity and they remain unaware that other investors are the source of the funds. Dang. So a Ponzi scheme can maintain the illusion of a sustainable business as long as new investors contribute new funds and as long as most of the investors do not demand full repayment. <laughs> so to like put all those sentences into just one sentence, it's basically you take money, it's that you pay... Um, you take money from Peter and you pay Paul or whatever. Yeah. Like you're taking yeah. money from investors to pay the other investors, but mm-hmm. they all think that it's a legitimate investment that you're doing business activities as actually making that money. Right. So and people usually, have dollar signs in their eyeballs. <laughs> exactly. Because the big thing of what attracts people to a Ponzi scheme is that typically they are... Um, promising a really really high return like a much (laughs) higher return than anybody else is so people are like "Ooh, it's like that innate thing that we all have where we're like super greedy like maybe this is the one time that it's that thing let's play red flag bingo with this topic because that's your first (laughs) red flag (laughs) yeah exactly it's like yeah prom so a big thing of ponzi schemes is they promise the high return with very little risk so like if it's too good to be true it probably it is. is. Too good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
so that's what a Ponzi scheme is. But where did the name Ponzi scheme come from? Like, why <laughs> is it named Ponzi? So the term Ponzi scheme was coined after a swindler named Charles Ponzi, not Alfred, scammed a bunch of people in 1920. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Charles and about where I he came from. still can't believe it's 1920. I don't know why. I just assumed late. What time period did you think it was from? 1970. Yeah, see, I thought it was much... I was thought it was going to be like the 80s or something. <laughs> I don't something. know why. Everyone was investing in everything back in the day. Because I think that when we think of these big, like, financial schemes, mm -hmm. that's the time period we think of. The 70s and 80s. 80s, yeah, the whole Wall Street, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the shenanigans. Was like, right? ooh, yeah, totally. Because I think there's been so many movies the mob, and so much talk about crime. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole Wall Street thing. Yeah, it surprised me that it was that early, too. Okay. Um, so, Charles Ponzi was born in Italy in 1882. His ancestors had been um, well-to-do at some point, but his family had fallen on hard times and they no longer had money. So he came from a background where they used to have mm. money, but did not. And they were very much aware of it. <laughs> um, he somehow ended up getting into university. Uh, he had worked in some odd jobs and then got into university. Um, which sounds like it should have been this opportunity for him to get a leg up and make some money for his family, but it was not. It could have been, but it did not end up being that way, as we will see throughout his life. He could have made so many other choices, and he didn't. But he's famous now. Exactly. Hey, exactly. <laughs> okay, so he, he had a bunch of rich friends at university, because usually it's like the more wealthy people that were going there. Mm -hmm. um, and they had basically treated school like a four-year vacation, <laughs> because they didn't have to, like, it, it wasn't... It was just yeah. something that they did. Like, yeah. they weren't dependent on it to get money, obviously. Yeah. They were there for the social clubs. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so he ended up spending most of his time with these rich friends um, in bars, cafes, and the opera. So at the end of his four <laughs> years, he was broke and he didn't have a degree because he never went to class and he had spent all his money. <laughs> he was just dicking around. Oh my he God. was, like, totally. <laughs> Um, so at this time in history, there were a lot of Italian men that were migrating to the U.S. and then returning back to Italy with a lot of money, like very much that a whole American dream. But they weren't staying in America. They were just <laughs> making money and coming back. Yeah. Um, so Ponzi's family encouraged him to do the same thing. And they thought, hey, this is going to be this will be the time that yeah. he actually does something for the family. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It was not. <laughs> oh, he did something, but nothing to benefit oh anybody else. <laughs> OK, so in 1903, Ponzi gets to Boston. And with the time that he arrived, he had only two dollars and 50 cents in his pocket. Now, he didn't get on the boat or whatever whatever voyage. His, he didn't start that way. He had a bunch of money, <laughs> but he gambled it all away. He gambled the rest of his life savings on the voyage to <laughs> Can America. you imagine his mom is like, son, please go to America. Here's all of our savings. <laughs> yeah. $30. <laughs> and like you never hear about that kind of stuff in all those movies where it's like, oh, just these poor people arrived in the country and we're so yes. grateful. It's like, yeah, but you don't show this this idiot like gambling <laughs> exactly. away all this. He could have been fine. He could have like started a new life for himself just fine but no 
<laughs> he needed to make more money. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so when he got there, he worked at a bunch of odd jobs for a few years and never really found any success because it's like the <laughs> age-old thing of he thought he's just going to like be rolling in the cash immediately, yeah. but then he realized, "Oh wait, I'm doing oh, a I bunch have to of work for just it? yeah, like grunt work <laughs> and barely making any money." Yeah. So in 1907, he moved to Montreal, and he got a job as an assistant bank teller at a new bank called Banco Zarossi. Um, <laughs> what are you laughing about? Just French Canada. Keep it down and it's over like, Banco Zarossi. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's quite the like amalgamation of cultures here. <laughs> okay, so the bank had been started by a guy named Luigi. Here we go, Luigi yeah! Zarossi. Um, to service the influx of Italian immigrants that were arriving in Montreal. Hmm. It was at this bank that he first saw the scheme of robbing Peter to pay Paul, <laughs> which is later called a Ponzi scheme. Because you're oh just taking gosh. money from one guy and you're basically giving it to the other guy to yeah. like keep them happy until that other guy gets mad again. And then you have to find <laughs> a new investor. <laughs> Okay, so Rossi um, was paying 6% interest on bank deposits, which was double what the other banks were paying. Um, and the bank was growing rapidly because of this, because, of course, everybody wanted <laughs> yeah. the higher interest rate, right? Yeah. So, Zarossi was funding interest payments on bad real estate loans, not through the profit on investments, but by using the money that was being deposited in newly opened accounts. So, classic Ponzi scheme. The bank eventually failed, and Zarossi fled to Mexico with a bunch of the bank's money. <laughs> see? So, in theory, it should be a Zarossi scheme. It should be, right? And you'll see, like, later, I'll tell you about some people who did it even earlier than these guys. So, oh, yeah. it could have been named after any of these people. I mean, it's just a classic scheme, I think. <laughs> but I'll also tell you why it's named after Ponzi, specifically. Nice. It's interesting. Okay. <laughs> So after all of this, obviously the bank isn't functioning anymore, so he needed to find a new job. He actually ended up staying with Zarossi's family for a while because Zarossi fled to Mexico on his own. He just completely left his family. <laughs> he can't even make his own family. He's like, I know. Oh, this one's already set up for me. Perfect. That was basically exactly it. And then, so he was bouncing around a little bit, and then he ended up forging a check, and he got caught uh, and went to jail in Montreal for three years. <laughs> Sorry, I just had such a strong reaction to that. Like, oh, no. I'm like, it's Ponzi. <laughs> like, calm down. He's he went gonna, to, this is the worse. first of a few times in jail. <laughs> so then eventually he made his way back down to the States, where in 1911, he got involved in a scheme to smuggle Italian illegal immigrants across the border. He was caught, and he spent two years in prison in Atlanta. So at this prison, he became a translator for the warden who was intercepting letters from a mobster named Ignacio the Wolf Lupo. And Ponzi actually ended up befriending this mobster guy. <laughs> so like he's totally one of those people that ended up going to jail and like learning more about like just how to be a better criminal <laughs> by being in jail. <laughs> so he also befriended another prisoner named Charles Morse. So that's like Morse code, 
Mm-hmm. He's not the guy that did the Morse code, but he's, that's the highest point, <laughs> honestly. The biggest scheme of all. Yeah, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> so this guy became kind of a role model for Ponzi. And the reason why I've included it here and why it's significant is because this Charles Morse was a huge fraudster and a really corrupt businessman. Uh-huh. He was known as the Iceman in New York because his corrupt business practices had led him to have a monopoly of New York's ice business. Um, He ended up moving into high finance, like away from the ice business stuff and into high finance, where his attempt to manipulate the price of copper shares set off a wave of selling that developed into what is known as the Panic of 1907. And it also goes by the 1907 Bankers Panic or the Knickerbocker (laughs) Crisis. Which you'd think I would look that up from the last time we had this conversation. Yeah. We were like, what's Knickerbocker mean? Yeah, why is it called Knickerbocker? And I did not look it up, you guys. What's the I just sat here again? being mad. The panic? I love that title. The 1907 Bankers Panic. Yeah, Bankers Panic. <laughs> I like that, though. It's specific. Get, like, who's panicking? Yeah. Exactly. What year are they panicking in? Yeah. You know? It's good. So, uh, they should have said the location. So this panic of 1907 was a financial crisis that took place over a three-week period when the New York Stock Exchange fell almost 50%. So he's, like, getting in tight with these people who are very, like, (laughs) quote-unquote savvy, because, I mean, they're all in jail, so obviously they've gotten caught, but... they they, They're, like, con artists and fraudsters, and, like, they've been doing it a while. Right. Okay, so he gets out of jail. Um, He gets to like he gets some has some odd jobs and does some stuff he ends up um meeting and marrying his wife and by 1919 um he's kind of like failed at a whole bunch of different things so he's been to jail a few times he's met and been influenced by some like real con artist he's con artists he's worked Mm -hmm. a bunch of odd jobs he's married and mm-hmm. he's tried to even start some businesses, like legitimate businesses. Yeah. He tried to make a success of his father-in-law's fruit stand business, but he failed at everything. So oh. he failed at that fruit stand business. He failed at all the businesses that he was trying to start. Yeah. So it seems... I don't, I don't think know it's because he's bad were... at business. I think it's it just sounds like he doesn't want to do the work. That's my thought, too, is, like, I don't think he wanted to do the work for the returns that he was getting. Right. Because I think, like, in my mind, being a con artist, like, being, like, a fraudster in that way takes a lot of work. Like, you were always schmoozing. You were always, like, working, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it is a lot of work. It's just they don't want to do that level of work to make minimum wage. Right? Yeah. They're like, oh, but I could have. And it's kind of that thing, like, (laughs) it's like for me when I... I always can find a, a spot to tell, like, really inappropriate jokes, like, really, like, <laughs> bad jokes. But you're like, yeah. oh, it just had to be said. It was, like, the perfect moment. Yeah. You have to say that can joke. Can I just interrupt quickly? <laughs> yes. I was at the zoo with my nephew and his little buddy. that He was there, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know he'd be there. And the three of us, we sometimes play online games, right? Because they yeah. always rope me in. And I finally met the kid's mom. And she said, oh, it's nice to meet you finally. I just always hear your voice, you know. And Aww. I'm like, oh, yeah. So, like, it was really nice. And she's such a sweetheart. And then I was teasing because we were looking at Lego sculptures at the zoo. And I was teasing my nephew and his friend because everyone's like, oh, you guys, you have to build, a, like, a statue, right, to the yeah. kids. 
<laughs> and I was like, I don't know if I trust you two to build something. And I said, and here's a decapitated figure. And here's a decapitated figure. <laughs> and the kids were laughing because we all have a dark sense of humor together. Yeah. And the mom just kind of faltered. And I'm like, uh, no. I just made a decapitation joke. Like... But it's Yikes. funny in the con- and it was like see it was the perfect like context for it and it was a funny right? joke because it had kids, to be said we always make those jokes but it's like one of those moments where you're like oh no you're like, that's not wait, the right I time. shouldn't have yeah that shouldn't have come out of my yeah. mouth I should have saved that for later <laughs> yeah exactly but I think that that's how these con artists work it's the same thing like when they see a, an opportunity for a scam. Mm -hmm. like a scheme like this it's like they almost can't not do it right like (laughs) that's the perfect way of putting it yeah they see that it's possible and they're like i just i have to do it (laughs) and i can't not make decapitation jokes (laughs) yeah exactly it works it works okay so here is where we get to the big scheme So in 1919, Ponzi had set up a small office in Boston and was attempting to sell business ideas to contacts in Europe, which when you think of it is really hilarious since none of his businesses (laughs) were successful. That's my favorite business But they're all in Europe. What do they know? (laughs) Okay. So he got a letter from a company in Spain, which included an IRC, which is an international reply coupon. So these coupons were basically postage that people could pre-purchase and include in their correspondence. So the person who received the letter with the coupon in it would take it to the local post office and exchange it for the priority airmail postage stamps needed to send a reply. So (laughs) kind of like how we have sometimes where they're like a prepaid envelope Mm -hmm. is included, right? But instead of being the whole envelope, they actually included a coupon that they could get just the stamp um, equivalent. So I was like, okay, that's all fine and good. But how does this concept turn into a scheme? So the IRCs were priced at the cost of postage in the country where they were purchased. But they could be exchanged for stamps to cover the cost of postage in the country where the coupon was redeemed. Which means that if the values of the postage were different in each country, which they were, there was potential profit to be made. Mm Mm-hmm. So, for example, after World War I, inflation had greatly decreased the cost of postage in Italy. So an IRC that was purchased in Italy and then redeemed in the U.S. for stamps that had a higher value, because inflation hadn't hit the U.S. as hard, those U.S. stamps could then be sold at the higher price. (laughs) So the idea is that he would be um, getting these stamps into the U.S. and then like exchanging the or getting the coupons, exchanging the coupons for stamps, and then selling the stamps for like. So the I wonder amount. if, um, like I know you don't have this, but if it would be legal for just Joe Schmo to sell a, the stamps. Yes. Oh, okay. It was legal. So this, even this whole concept was legal. Like the idea Mm -hmm. of it is completely legal. It's considered a form of arbitrage, which just means profiting by buying an asset at a lower price in one market and immediately selling it in a market where the price is higher. But even if the federal government is involved, I'm assuming it was federal, isn't it? Isn't like, like, you know, like Canada Post is. Yeah. And yes, I think. Oh no, but I guess other places have postage. I'm dumb. Okay. 
Yeah, and at that time, it would have been totally fine for some guy on the street to be like, "Here, you can buy this stamp from me." Mm-hmm. Just like I think, um, like scalpers like can buy, can sell stick, stickets, can sell <laughs> tickets. Can they though? But legal, I think they just can't. Oh, I make think it higher price. Make a higher price. I think you can't make a profit off of it. Right. Right. Okay. So you could sell a, a stamp for exactly what it's worth. Right. To somebody, right? You can't necessarily inflate it. I don't know. Right. I kind of want to look into scalpers, though, because I never really understood that whole thing. <laughs> uh, because now they can resell tickets on Ticketmaster at, like, what, quadruple the price? How is that not illegal? I don't understand I it. Don't Maybe because they're making taxes off of it. Maybe that's where the whole thing comes Maybe. in. Okay, I'm going off on such a tangent right now. <laughs> okay, um, so technically this idea is completely legal. So this in itself is not a Ponzi scheme. It's what he does next that makes this whole situation super shady. <laughs> he brings a special Ponzi twist to it. Okay, so Ponzi saw the potential to make a ton of money from exchanging these postal coupons. And so he wanted to buy up a whole bunch of them. But in order to do that, he needed a, a, like some capital up front. So a bunch of money to buy the initial batch of coupons. <laughs> he went to some banks telling them like his kind of business plan for it and tried to borrow a bunch of money, but he got turned down at all of them. So the banks were like, <laughs> no, this is a ridiculous idea. Yeah. Who the hell is going to buy that many stamps? <laughs> yeah. And instead of being like, hmm, maybe, maybe it's not such a good idea. He's like, no, I love this idea so much. <laughs> I'm going to double down. So in 1920, he ended up setting setting up a stock company in order to raise money from the public. So like private investors. His company was called the Securities Exchange Company. He told his investors that they would get 50% interest on their loan over 45 in 45 days or if they left it in for 90 days they'd get a 100% return a 100% <laughs> it's crazy so it's a short time period so very low risk and huge like crazy return on investment at this time, to put it into perspective, at this time, banks were only paying 5% annual interest, and he's offering them 100% on 90 days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh it's, it doesn't even make sense. Okay, so it's a crazy high return on investment. In the first month, he had 18 people invest a total of $1,800. How good was his English at this point? What? Did he, wait, did he go to university in the States? No, in Italy, but he actually, I didn't, he, when he first got to the States, he yeah. um, learned a whole bunch of different languages. So he actually oh, ended up okay. knowing like four or five different languages. Oh, okay. He was very personable, like totally oh, charismatic, okay. all that kind of stuff. Like the typical con artist. Like, imagine he could this like broken English it. situation. And I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> Give me money. <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> Okay, so he those initial investors, he paid them their profits the very next month, um, except, of course, he didn't use the profits from the coupons. He used the money that he had gotten from newer people that had just invested <laughs> with him. So literally right off the bat, 
he <laughs> is doing this Ponzi scheme. Like <laughs> the coupons don't even factor in at any point. He <laughs> literally just starts. Like he could have made it about anything. It didn't even have to like have anything to do with these damn coupons. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, so he set up a larger office and he hired some agents to bring in new investors and he would pay them a commission, whatever, like really good commissions. So he'd oh, get these like man. like really like um like pitbull kind of agents to work for him between February and March of 1920 to put this in perspective he started doing this in January of 1920 mm-hmm. so between February and March the total amount invested had risen from $5000 to $2500 nope Twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> like, how did it go down? I know. I was like, what? Twenty five thousand. So, from five thousand to twenty five thousand. By May of nineteen twenty, he had made four hundred and twenty thousand dollars, which is equivalent to almost six million in today's money. And that's in May. <laughs> By June, uh, people had invested $2.5 million in his scheme, which is oh equivalent to $34 million today. And at the beginning of July, he was bringing in a million dollars per week. And by the <laughs> end of July, he was almost bringing in a million dollars a day. And that's in 1920. Like, that's a I ridiculous can't, amount yeah, of money. I can't even fathom, like, how many people... Invested or else how many, like, super filthy rich people? It must have been how many people, right? Like more. I think it was a combination of both. There were well, some yeah. big um, investors and then there were oh some... Oh, my gosh. There was definitely volume of investors as well. That's insane. Yeah. So people were mortgaging their homes and investing their life savings in this scheme. Most of them didn't take their profits. They just end up ended up reinvesting it into the mm. scheme. So when it came time to be like, hey, do you want to be paid out? They'd be like, no, 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 this is amazing. Just keep it, like, just mm-hmm. keep my money in there. Um, so even though Ponzi's company was absolutely raking money in every day, the business was actually running at a huge loss. As long as money was flowing in, the existing investors could be paid with the new money that was coming in. But the only source of income was new investments. Ponzi had made literally no effort to generate any legitimate (laughs) profits at all. He hadn't figured out a way to actually change those coupons, the IRCs, into cash. And then he eventually realized that it was logistically impossible to even provide the returns that he had promised for everyone. (laughs) For example, for the initial 18 investors that he had in January of 1920, it would have taken 53,000 postal coupons to actually realize the arbitrage profits, <laughs> like to even make any kind of profit on it. Like it's oh an insane gosh. amount. Okay, fun fact. His initial investors had been working class immigrants like himself, but soon there were all kinds of people investing. In its heyday, almost 75% of Boston's police force had invested in the scheme. Ponzi's own brother-in-law was an investor, and his own chauffeur was an investor as well. (laughs) Ponzi was indiscriminate about who invested with him. He would take any amount of money from anyone. Like, there are even some stories about, like, little kids who would give him, like, five bucks. (laughs) And, like, like, he just would take money from anybody. It didn't matter. He's like, sure, you want to, like, throw money at me? I'll take it. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you can never relax in that kind of like situation, right? No. So like why? I don't know why anyone would want to do that to themselves. Like you're just constantly running. You're like a hamster on a wheel. Like you can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay, so other fun fact, Ponzi bought a macaroni company and part of a wine company in an attempt to gain profits <laughs> that could be used to repay investors of his IRC scheme. So, like, he was aware that he needed some kind of profits coming in, but he made a really pathetic little attempt oh at, like, gosh, there, it didn't even come close. Uh, yeah, like, you're not going to make a million dollars a day on macaroni, like, to I know. cover I should anything. have invested in, what were the early things? Dog biscuits or gum or... Oh my gosh, yes. Kellogg's. He should have gone and talked to Kellogg and been like, hey, do I have an idea for you? <laughs> Let's put coupons on your cereal boxes. What? Hey! <laughs> cereal coupon boxes! <laughs> Somebody does it. Mm-hmm. We'll have to figure out. That'll be our next t- topic. <laughs> Who did the first coupons in cereal boxes? <laughs> it is Ponzi. <laughs> Okay, so near the end of July 1920, the Boston Post newspaper had printed a favorable article about Ponzi, and it brought even more investors in than ever before. But even though the article had been positive, the acting publisher and the editor were really suspicious of Ponzi, and they assigned investigative reporters to look into him. And this is like the beginning of the end. So Ponzi, at this time, he was also under investigation by state authorities, um, but he had done a really good job of, like, putting everything off, like, because they were like, hey, we want to talk about, you know, is this legitimate? He'd been getting so much press. So they were like, hey, what's going on here? We need to, like, take a look at this. But he had done a good job of, like, oh, meeting this week won't work for me. I'll meet you next week and then canceling (laughs) the meetings and, you know, classic, like, scam artist stuff. Um, so a couple days later, after this, the paper was investigating stuff, um, the Post started a series of articles that started asking hard questions about how Ponzi's business operated. They pointed out that although the return on investment was fantastic, Ponzi himself was not investing with his own company, which was like a major red flag for them. Hey, red flag bingo! Red flag! They also noted that in order to cover the investments that had been made, there would have to be 160 million postal reply coupons <laughs> in circulation. <laughs> However, according to the post office, there were only about 27,000 coupons in circulation. You know, <laughs> so if you like, timed this for hmm. like during wartime when like letters were probably really like just flying back and forth, right? Yeah. He might have gotten away with it. Who knows? <laughs> So Ponzi hired a publicist to help him because he's like, uh, this is not good press. Um, But this publicist quickly became suspicious of him and actually ended up being like a major part of his downfall. So this publicist found some incriminating documents that basically outlined how Ponzi was just circulating money between investors. Also, why would you write that down? It's like it was it's like he found his diary, like dear diary. <laughs> Today I robbed from Peter and gave to Paul. <laughs> it was a great day. <laughs> like who writes down your plan like that? <laughs> I'm sure he found Charles like actual Ponzi. documents. Yeah. He later described Ponzi as a quote financial idiot and mm-hmm. ended up selling his story to the post. So by the beginning of August, bank examiners reported that so many investors had cashed their checks on Ponzi's main account that it had become overdrawn. 
So the banks stopped paying out on his account. Because at this point, people are reading these newspaper articles and they're like, wait, what? Just to be careful, I'm going to take my money out. Like, I'm taking it out. And but he doesn't have the money there because he's been using that money to just pay other people. So that money doesn't exist anymore. So the banks are like, they're going to go broke if they keep paying stuff out on his account. So they stop all of that. In uh, um, on August 12th, there had been so many reports about him being arrested any day now. So Ponzi decided to surrender to federal authorities because he's like, uh, they're coming for me anyway. I'm just yeah. going to surrender. And he, he ended wants up to being... catch up with his uh, jail buddies, probably. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> oh, this is nothing new for me. I'll make some friends in here. And we're we we're just... going to be stars. <laughs> okay. So in practice. Okay. So. So you have, like, three people, they invest in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. And so what your promise, because I'm dumb, I don't know anything about investment. Um, so these guys, at the end of, like, the 90 days or whatever, they would get the money back plus extra? Like, they actually make a profit? So at that point, they would have, like, an option of, do you want your money out? Like, the term no, of your investment is done. No, I know, but if they done. do get their money out, that would be, it would have to be profit. Otherwise, there's no point, Right. Right. They don't so, just get their money back. So after the ninety days, that? they would they get their they get their interest payments, like their hundred percent interest or whatever, like their uh huh. They that they get those payments. So those are the payments that they keep getting, which proves to them that it's a legitimate they keep, quote unquote oh, legitimate I don't know thing. How investing works. I'm done. So like after forty five days they get their fifty percent. Like after No, I know the percentage is confusing. So ultimately yeah. when you cash out, you should have more than you put in, right? Yes. Yeah. Like if you cash out and walked away forever kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. So then he would you would need in okay, not good math or anything, but like you'd need like four or five next tier investors to pay those people, right? Yeah. Yeah. So each time you have to kind of just get more and more almost like double it's, it's like a snowball effect in a way, right? Because right. not only do you owe those people back their original investment, but mm-hmm. you also are paying out all of their interest, like the, right. the profits that those people are making, so like then their as interest. Soon as, so it's not sustainable because as soon as you start getting, like needing 100 investors yeah. to pay off the next, right? Yeah. That's right? Okay. That's why quite often Ponzi schemes are confused with pyramid schemes. Because it kind of goes down that way. You keep needing more and more and more and more to feed into that original thing. But Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes, they're similar, but they're not the same thing. Oh. But it's that same concept of, like, you always need more because you have no no source of income that's just generating on its own. Like, you would if you had a legitimate business plan or a legitimate thing. Because the idea is that people invest in your business Mm. and you've got, like something else a product you're selling or something else that you're making money and the profits off of that can go to pay all your overhead pay your employees and pay i was just trying to think is there a way to make it sustainable or how much money would you need to pay off that last bottom tier if you want literally there's no way way. it is impossible to it is when in all my research that i did they said a ponzi scheme will never last it can't last it can't last yeah at some point it will get to the point where you I don't just have enough how coming much in if he had done something legitimate mm-hmm. if in theory he could have you know what i mean like 
But see, that's why in legitimate investments, you'll never see a high return like that. Because like, that's why you see, oh, like maybe 3% or whatever. Like you see these small amounts because it's, it's not feasible to be paying people a huge profit. Like where you need that money to keep running your business Look, to make more money. If he had invested in like the Pepsi Cola company, maybe it would have worked. Okay. <laughs> but even those, the reasons why it works was because like if all of their investors were getting a hundred percent back on their investment, like there's no possible way that it would run. <laughs> okay. But why? Okay. I don't know why people do this. It's hilarious. Why do people invest with that kind of stuff? No, why the the pe- schemers do it at all? The schemers do it. Oh, they get. <laughs> yeah. so, I th- I'm convinced that it's like they get such a thrill from being able yeah. to do it. And even like I'll talk to you about his like his final statement on his like like his oh final report that or um, yeah uh, interview that he does for a newspaper oh, yeah. before he dies. And it's very much like I think they get a thrill out of doing it's not even necessarily about the money. Right. I mean, I think the money helps, but it's like (laughs) they just they like being able to do that to people. I kind of see it like I kind of get why why they have the thrill of it. Oh, for sure. It's like solving a puzzle. It's like manipulating a situation and actually works and it goes your way. You're like, hey, this is awesome. You know, like who doesn't like that feeling? Conning legit money men, like people, especially with a lot of money. That's like Mm -hmm. a lot of people love that kind of stuff. Totally. Okay. So he surrenders to federal authorities and he was charged with mail fraud um, by the federal government for sending letters to his investors telling them their notes had matured and stuff like that. like mm-hmm. So he was giving them information that was false. Um, right. And then he was charged also on a state level, he was charged with larceny, which is the unlawful taking or theft of personal property. Mm. So he's charged by both. So he ends up spending a few years in jail for the federal um, stuff. And then when he gets out of jail there, I think he serves some time for the state on the state level. Um, but while he's in jail, he continued to receive Christmas cards from some of his more gullible <laughs> investors and even received some requests to invest their money <laughs> while he they're writing to him in prison. <laughs> like, Red flag. And they're like, Bingo. hey, can you take my money, please? It's burning a hole in my pocket. Please uh. take my money. But you're legit, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so after he got out of jail, he went to Florida and he tried to scam people there for a little bit, um, but he got caught very quickly and went back to jail. Eventually, this happened like a couple times, and then eventually he was finally released in 1934, and people in America had had enough. They (laughs) deported him back to Italy because they were like, get this guy out of here. He obviously can't stop scamming people and they fall for it. So like, let's get him out. (laughs) So in Italy, he also jumped from scheme to scheme. He just seemed, that seemed to be the thing that he was good at. He just kept doing it. Well. (laughs) He eventually moved to Brazil and spent his last years in poverty, which is ironic. Um, In his final years, he gave one last interview to an American reporter and told him, quote, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice of forethought, he had given I had given them the best show that was ever staged in their territory since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. <laughs> so, like, for him, he's like, hey, you gotta admit, it was entertaining. 
it. Oh my yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, fun facts. Whoop, whoop. Um, Ponzi schemes can attribute a lot of their success to something called irrational exuberance, which is when people observe others making great profits from investments and determine that this means that the investments are safe, mm. even if there's no underlying reasons to support these conclusions. So just by being like, hey, you got the return that he promised, like, mm. that is, like, all they need to hear. They don't want to look irrational into anything else. Irrational exuberance. Yeah. I feel like that's what the diet industry works on as it's, well. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> this is also what led to a dramatic market crash in 1637 in Whoa. Holland during the tulip craze of the 1600s. The same irrational exuberance, which I think leads to anything of people, like getting into <laughs> That's anything. the definition of humanity. Irrational yeah. exuberance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, exactly. We solved yes. everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so Charles Ponzi is obviously not the only person who's run a Ponzi scheme. He's just the one that it's named after. In 2019... U.S. law enforcement discovered 60 major Ponzi schemes with victims investing oh. over $3 billion. Oh my That's God. just in 2019. Yeah. So here's a quick rundown of some famous Ponzi schemes and then some that came even before Ponzi. <laughs> so the, one of the most famous that I'm sure we all know the name of is Bernie Madoff. Um, he's responsible for executing the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Over the course of 17 years, he defrauded people out of almost $65 billion. Whoa. He started his investment firm in the 1960s. Oh, no, in 1960. Um, but he didn't start his Ponzi scheme until sometime in the 1990s. So okay. I don't know how legit his business was initially. Before, I'm sure it's yeah, probably yeah. always a tinge of like a scam in there. But <laughs> um, it's everybody says he didn't really start scheming until sometime in the 1990s. Hmm. And he was only found out when the global recession hit in 2008. Oh, man. So in 2008, people, um, investors tried to withdraw approximately $7 billion from his funds and very quickly realized that he did not have the money there. Yeah. So that's how he was found out, went to jail, died in jail, whatever. Right. He's a scumbag. And I think, like, obviously it was such a huge scale and such a big deal. But I think part of why he became this big thing, too, was that there were a lot of famous people that yeah. invested with him personally and also their foundations were investing with him. Oh, man. So it was like all Yikes. over the news because everybody was outraged because <laughs> it was rich white people that were being scammed. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one is Lou Pearlman. You might recognize his name from the 1990s uh, Backstreet Boys and Sync. OK, he, did you have to uh, stress you? Them. Like, as if you, you were talking to specifically. me. Let's make it very clear here, people. I <laughs> never liked the Backstreet Boys or me anything. Neither. How dare you? But yes, I do know Lou Pearlman. I do <laughs> like that <laughs> the NSYNC, that Bye 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 song. I do like that one. I yeah. did not like Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. And all of the girls in my grade, like when I was growing up, were obsessed with them. They're like, he's so cute. He's so cute. Yeah. I'm like, they're all morons. I don't like them. <laughs> I mean, I did love New Kids on the Block, but who didn't? Come on. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> okay. So Lou Pearlman also started a Ponzi scheme. 
because he's a class act. Uh, For almost two decades, he convinced banks and investors to invest in companies that were entirely fabricated. Apparently, his notoriety from the success of the boy bands made people want to get in on some of his wealth. And so he began conning people. He's like, hey, this is a great opportunity. People are listening to me because I somehow Mm -hmm. made these young boys sing. And they want in on this. I'm going to make up some companies. So he created two companies that only existed on paper and convinced people to invest in them. He reportedly swindled around $300 million from both banks and investors. Crazy. $300 million? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So now we get to somebody who existed or came about and was doing Ponzi schemes before Ponzi did. Oh my God. Her name is Sarah Howe. Surprising that it's a woman, but yeah. interesting. Very. So she is an Amer- was is she's not alive still. <laughs> she was an American fraudster who ran multiple Ponzi schemes in the late 1800s. Oh my. She opened the Ladies Deposit Company in 1879, <laughs> which was a savings bank that accepted deposits only from unmarried women. Oh Weird gosh. that she would prey on them. Like, don't they have it badly enough at that time? I know. To be unmarried is, like, the worst yeah. thing for women. So she promised high interest rates, but in typical Ponzi fashion, she was only using the new deposits to pay the returns on the older deposits. She didn't do any advertising, but she was able to attract $500,000 in deposits from about 1,200 women. And some of them were women that were in other cities and states at that time. And it was based entirely on word of mouth referrals from her existing depositors. Oh my gosh. Isn't that crazy? So she eventually was caught, went to jail. When she got out, she actually set up another bank for women. I think it was literally called the Women's Bank. Um, And she got caught again. She kept trying a few more of these schemes for a few more years, but she she just kept getting caught. Like, she didn't really have any extended success with any of it. Right. Um, She ended up being... So before she started doing these, like, Ponzi schemes, she uh, worked as a fortune teller for a period of time. And so in her old age, after she was like, okay, fine, I can't run these schemes. Nobody's (laughs) buying it anymore. She ended up just going back to being a fortune teller and then died when she was like 60 or something. So it never ends though, is what we're learning. Yeah, stop scamming people. It's not going to work. work. I mean, for longer than two decades, apparently. <laughs> It'll work for yeah. a while. Just like, yeah, and then take the money and run at some point. Like, exactly. They're forgetting the running part. That's the whole thing is that they get greedy. Like that guy who took the money mm-hmm. and ran from the bank, like he's lived it up in right? Mexico probably. I mean, yeah. his family was destitute, but he was having a great time. Yeah, what he care? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so now we get to somebody named Adele Spitzeder. She operated what may have been the very first Ponzi scheme in history. Crazy. She was born Adelheid Louise Spitzeter. I included that because I think the first name Adelheid is hilarious. I love, I love it. it. And I love that it was shortened to Adele, which makes sense. Because who wants to go about being called Adelheid? But I liked it. <laughs> So she was born in Berlin in 1832 and rose to fame as an actress in 1856. Her success didn't last for too long, but her extravagant lifestyle sure did. By 1869, she was desperate for money. 
So she ended up borrowing some money from this woman that she met, I think, like on a train platform or something. And she promised this woman um, that she knew somebody who was willing to take that money and pay this woman 10% a month for it. So she'd be making 10% as long as like she could hold on to that money that she gave her. And it worked. This woman's like, okay, cool. I'll give you that money. (laughs) And so Adele was like, ooh, this is working. She sees an opportunity. And she actually advertised similar services in a newspaper saying that she would take this money and pay them like 10% or whatever on it. Yeah. So she very quickly had a lot of people who were willing to lend money to her. And so many that she ended up creating her own bank in 1869. (laughs) Three years later, the bank was so successful that she was considered to be the wealthiest woman in Bavaria. Now, part of this success, unfortunately, was because um, anti-Semitism played like a huge role Mm. in all of this. Um, Many poor and less educated Christians mistrusted Bavaria's purportedly jewish dominated banking establishments so they were Mm. like "Ooh," and she really preyed on that so her advertisements were very anti-semitic in nature Mm. and that's how she got like this influx of people who were like yes that's what i've been thinking this whole time finally we have an option that isn't giving money to jewish people yeah which sucks that it was like that but Mm. yeah that's what it was um, so the bank was run as a classic Ponzi scheme by using new deposits to pay the interest to the original debtors and debtors, depositors. Adele <laughs> had no formal training in accounting, so it was a little bit ridiculous that she suddenly was running her own bank. But I mean, that's all of these guys. Didn't, they didn't have accounting experience. Yeah. They didn't need it because they weren't doing proper accounting anyway. No, of course not. But still. She typically kept the money that was deposited by people in cupboards in her rooms or in sacks stacked on the floor. (laughs) So, like, super legit. Where do you want to take your money? Not to that, like, properly set up bank over there. I'm going to go, like, put it in a sack on this lady's floor over here. Come on. Oh, my gosh. It seems legit. So the only accounting that she ever did was to record the depositors' names and the amount received from them. So she (laughs) had no other records of any kind. (laughs) Nothing about paying out, like, interest amounts, like, anything like that. How people straight in terms of, like, the levels of people, right? Like... I have no idea. There'd have to be, like, a tier list at least. Oh, my gosh. You'd think there would have to be some kind of record of, I've paid this much out in interest, and they've yeah. rolled their thing over, they've done this, they whatever. Like, there's oh my there's nothing. Although, if someone comes to your door and they're like, can I have my money? And you just go and grab some cash from your sack, then I guess you're fine. I mean, here's Let's the thing. do this. This is easy. Yeah, like, it's not just the people who run the schemes that are morons. Let me just leave it there. It's a little, like, buyer beware. If be- Oh, yeah, I could go down. St- I'm going to say something that I'm not allowed to say. I used to work in in bankruptcy or insolvency, corporate insolvency, years ago. And we mm. had quite a few investment firms that filed for bankruptcy while I worked there. Mm. And it was my job, part of my job, to talk to all the people that were calling in. Mm-hmm. Um, all the creditors who were owed money because they invested with somebody and he ran off and took all their money. They met him at church, so was, they thought they could trust oh, him. Yeah. <laughs> and it's these people, there was a lot of people that were very 
old, like in their mid 70s, who had handed over their entire retirement savings. And I had to have a conversation a few times with people like, listen, when you're at that age, why are you even investing anything? Like you're supposed to be living off of those retirement savings. You're not supposed to even invest. It's not legal to let people like that invest large amounts of money in Canada anyway. It's not legal. So they're like, oh, and nobody had... Um, proper paperwork. They're like, he never signed the paperwork. Oh, he said he was going to send it to us, but he didn't. I'm like, why? And you handed over $200,000? Like, what What? were you thinking? Like, I know you've been screwed over, but at some point, too, the onus is a little bit on you to make sure that you're, like, at least getting the paperwork signed or something. I don't know. There's got to be something on both sides there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Not to, like, blame the victim too much, but come you on. You guys, anything involving any kind of financial anything, like, just money mm-hmm. equals paperwork. Lots and lots of paperwork. <laughs> yes. You have to have it. You have to do it. You have to make sure it's legitimate. <laughs> it also involves legitimate, you know, you can get people to check your deals yeah. and whatever. Like, a lawyer. Who get right? Like, there's... Yep. You yeah. have to do the work. Even if someone has the best investment thing in the world, just do the freaking work. <laughs> yes. Like, take a second. Like, yeah. take a beat to get the proper stuff in place because it's going to protect mm-hmm. you in the long run. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So, at this time, the other legitimate banks that existed in the country, they were losing major business and actually on the brink of bankruptcy themselves because they were losing so much business. Like, she was just raking it in because she was offering like yeah. way higher returns oh and they God. couldn't they just couldn't compete with her promise of high returns like there's no way that they could do it right so the government actually ended up placing ads in the paper warning people not to invest with her and they made public statements denouncing the bank's fundamental unsoundness like oh. they, denouncing their unsoundness that doesn't really make sense denouncing their soundness no no whatever <laughs> No, you get the point. That was right. Denouncing their okay. unsoundness. Yep. Um, so <laughs> they thought, okay, cool. We're letting everybody know that there's something not right here. So they need to stop putting their money in with this woman. Oh, man. But this actually had the opposite effect that they were hoping for. Because to the financially unsophisticated bank customers, they saw it as the government not wanting them to get ahead by making more money with this higher interest rate. So they kept depositing money with her because they're like, no, the government's just trying to hold us down. Uh, like they're tr- they don't want the best for us. Like this whole thing. It's like people when people are blatantly telling you. <laughs> yeah. Scam. <laughs> OK, so obviously she's getting some bad press. And so to help her image, she publicly donated a bunch of money to various causes as a way to boost <laughs> the profile of the bank and improve its reputation. Oh, no. She also ended up bribing newspaper editors to defend herself from accusations or to defend her from accusations of fraud. She actually eventually ended up buying her own newspaper so that she could write whatever she wanted in it. <laughs> By 1872, the authorities started insisting that she start following proper accounting procedures. Like, I think it got to a point where they were like, hey, you need to actually register as a business, which she had been putting (laughs) off and putting off. And part of that registration was that she was required to do proper accounting. Yeah. So I think it kind of got to a point where she couldn't put it off any longer. Well, maybe. And then taxing. Taxes, don't you have to? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like, you have to do 
you have to follow the rules and do the proper things. Yeah. Um, so this combination with like all the bad press and everything like that and some of the um, her rivals like at the other banks and stuff were egging people on like trying to convince people like you need to go take your money out of there. It's not safe. Yeah. Um, so around 60 customers of the bank arrived at her house and demanded their money back. Instead of giving the money back, she just ended up running away. <laughs> she like totally oh fled because she didn't have the money, and definitely not when that many people came. Like, yeah, it works when you've got one person coming and yes. saying it, but when you've 60. got a bunch of people, you don't have that money there. So she was found v- fairly quickly and arrested, and the bank was shut down. <laughs> so overall, thirty-two thousand people lost a total of thirty-eight million gilden which was their um currency mm-hmm. at the time which is equivalent to 430 million dollars today oh in this God. case investors had ample warning from the authorities and the press that her scheme was a fraud but they chose to believe that her claims of conspiracy against her were true like that because yeah. she, she was saying oh no they're just saying bad things about me of course yeah And this is textbook confirmation bias. So they were ignoring Mm. evidence that didn't fit with their preconceived notions, Mm. which is confirmation bias. So that was the very first Ponzi scheme. Oh, my gosh. Now, so why did it end up being named after Ponzi and not Adele Adelhauser? What's her name? (laughs) Adelhauser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so the reason it was named after Ponzi was because he had a ton of press coverage within the US and also internationally, both during while the scheme was happening and then also during the aftermath. So it was like oh at gosh. a time where there was just constant press coverage like His around poor the mother. World. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I was going to give her, like, an, like Ponzinita. I'm like, why would her first name be Ponzinita? <laughs> <laughs> so although it wasn't the first time the scheme was done, it was the most internationally notorious one, which is why yeah. it got like, the name oh coined gosh. as Ponzi scheme. And that is the origin of the Ponzi scheme. That was amazing. <laughs> so if you guys are looking at investing money, if anyone is offering you a super high return and there's mm-hmm. almost no risk yeah. and they're like And they don't invest in their own company. Pushy, and they don't invest in their own company and there's probably almost no paperwork. Yeah, no paperwork. And also their name is Charles Ponzi. Just walk away. <laughs> it's Charles Ponzi Jr. Jr. <laughs> yeah, because there's no easy way to make money. No, the only people who suddenly rake it in are usually the ones who just like, like suddenly become famous and they just and people throw their money at them. Yeah, in true like you know like it's only rich people are the ones that make easy money. Like mm-hmm. you already have to be at yeah, that point, true. and then it's like it's easy. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of because they don't really notice their losses. Like the people who invest in the Ponzi. That's true. Like, they weren't the really rich people that were doing it. They weren't the ones mortgaging their houses yeah. or giving their life savings. They were giving a portion of whatever. Yeah. So their loss, while it probably hurt them, wasn't the end of the world for them. Like, they're still making money and they're fine, you know? Yeah. yeah. But it's like those poor, like, middle class people that were like, maybe this is what I'm going to get ahead with. It's like, no, you're never going to get ahead. You're the middle class. Never. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're You're doomed. Don't bother trying. Nope. This has been a really uplifting episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
Aw, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, remember to like, subscribe, and review. It really helps us out. You can follow us on Instagram. We are at podcast.or.something. Or you can write to us at podcastorsomething at gmail.com and let us know how many Ponzi scams you've invested in. <laughs> and we will talk to you later or something. Bye. Bye.